Beginning to talk, acquiring language, is one of the most ordinary and remarkable things human beings do. By the age of three or four, children typically have vocabularies in the thousands of words and a grasp of complex grammar. In fact, as my guest Jean Broco Gleason was one of the first to confirm, young children know grammatical forms that no one ever tries to teach them, and they say things they've never heard anyone say before. She is a pioneer in psycholinguistics, in understanding how language emerges from childhood on and what it says about how we think and who we are. And she's maintained an exuberant and playful spirit to match her youngest research subjects. This hour, she shares what we keep learning about the human gift, as she puts it, to be conscious of ourselves and to comment on that. Jean Berko Gleason sees this as a frontier, every bit as important and thrilling as exploring outer space or the deep sea. We are innately predisposed to pay attention to little children and to talk to them. Let's not just assume that we are scientists sitting around watching babies unfold. We're unfolding with them. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Jean Berko Gleason is Professor Emerita of Psychology at Boston University. I interviewed her in 2011. She made her mark on linguistics in 1958 when she published The Wug Test. This was and still is performed on children using a simply drawn mythical creature of her devising. Jean's Wug Test, as one admiring linguistics student describes it, was the first to prove that young children analyze the words around them with innate mental structures and, as if by magic, find complicated rules in this chaotic mess and actually understand them. This was one of those monumental discoveries that laid the foundation for the modern study of linguistics. Jean Broco Gleason's own parents were immigrants from Transylvania. And though she never learned their mother tongue of Hungarian, she was an avid and gifted polyglot from an early age. As I look at your background, it, it seems clear that you, you didn't know from childhood that you would be a linguist, but that you were always fascinated with languages. And I wonder, Absolutely. you know, do you know where that came from? Was that planted somewhere actually, in your family? Actually, uh, there's probably a part of my family that, that has to do with it. One, I think some people are just interested in language. I mean, I, I just happen to find it easy to talk all kinds of languages, and I find it amusing, and I just love them. But I think there was a personal thing in my life as well, which is that I had an older brother who had cerebral palsy, mm. and he was really smart. In fact, he ultimately got a Ph.D. from Cornell, and he was a smart, lovely guy, but he had motoric incapacities mm. such that his speech was extremely difficult to understand, and I was probably the person who really understood him best. So when I was a kid, I was the person who, uh, when my brother Marty had problems saying something, I was the person who knew what he was saying and told everybody. So I guess my early experience as an interpreter had something to do with it, too. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, and then you went to college and you studied literature and history, and then you, you just kind of discovered yes. psycholinguistics. Or uh, linguistics. rather by happenstance. Uh -huh. No, cycle. Well, was it psycholinguistics by then? It, it was. Well, uh -huh. it, it wasn't called that. It was mm -hmm. called the psychology of language. But I had taken French and Spanish and Arabic and... No, I took Arabic later, I'm sorry, and Russian and 
Norwegian. I don't know. A lot, I had taken a lot of languages, but my senior year in college, I took a course on the psychology of language taught by a new young assistant professor who had just come from the University of Michigan, and his name was Roger Brown, and the course blew me away because it really talked about the things that were interesting to me, about how it is that human beings store language in their heads, how you acquire language, what happens when you lose language. And Roger Brown then went on to be somebody who made a major breakthrough in this field, right? Studying Adam and Eve and Sarah. Were those real names? No, they weren't. But I think think you might be interested to know that uh, although they were made-up names, they were real kids. They were kids in the Harvard uh, daycare or preschool, whatever it was called in those days. It was a big—if you know Cambridge, Massachusetts, there's a uh, a psychology building. It's called William James Hall. Mm. And where William James Hall used to be, uh, where William James Hall is, there used to be a a preschool in a Quonset hut, uh, a leftover World War II Quonset hut. We used to go there and sit on tiny chairs with great big tape recorders and record these kids. And what this study did was it it sent people on like a monthly basis to children's houses and tape recorded all of the interaction between the child and parents. And then they came back and gave uh, gave assistants or us, whoever we were, the uh, tapes, and people transcribed those tapes, typed them out, just just like the script of a play. And then a, a group of graduate students and Roger Brown would sit around the table looking at these transcripts and say, what's going on here? What are these kids doing? What What's their language? What's their grammar? What's their sound system? How do they make a question? You know, we began to really look into what the development of language looked like in a very naturalistic setting. You know, as I started to really steep myself in understanding what you do and what you know, where it took me was um, I I ended up learning German as a young adult and becoming Uh fluent in German. Um, Good. And good, I mean. Yeah. And I had this experience. You know, one thing that happened then, which I was recalling was... As I really learned the ins and outs of a new language, and, and German, of course, is very highly structured, so it was, you know, it's quite intentionally learning the ins and outs. Yes, yes. I became aware that I didn't know, at least consciously, know much of that about my mother tongue, right? That I, that I wouldn't possibly right. be able to explain to someone else how I constructed mm-hmm. a sentence in mm-hmm. English the way I could construct a sentence in German. And, mm-hmm. and this took me also, to, you know, I, I sense this excitement in your writing and in all the writing mm-hmm. in your field about just how amazing it is that we learn language and inhabit it starting so young in our lives. Well, it is it is remarkable, but you know the real appreciation of what we're doing didn't come until basically this century. There's in the past people were interested in in language and in how kids acquired language. You know, Charles Darwin wrote notebooks about one of his sons, and he outlined how the kid acquired language in in some sense, but not in the sort of, what you might say, componential way that we now understand. Mm -hmm. Because now we understand that language is made of a bunch of subsystems, a sound system, a meaning system, a syntactic system that that 
allows you to make sentences. Uh, and, and we know how those are structured in the languages we study. So now we can, we can have the linguist describe the language. You know, for, you're quite right. If you ask a speaker of English, what are the sounds of English? What they're going to tell you is, well, they're the vowels A, E, I, O, and U. You know, they will name the, the alphabet letters, yeah. but they won't really know what the sounds of English are. And they won't know which ones are the important ones in mm-hmm. some sense. Right. So and so, what I learned from you is that children start to acquire these things, and as well as thousands of vocabulary words um, and rules and systems, by the time they're three or four, and that children do this in every known society, whether it's literate or not, in every language. Absolutely. Uh, in fact, liter- literacy, written language, is a, a very late acquisition in terms of human evolution. You know, mm-hmm. human beings have been speaking for hundreds of thousands of years, maybe a million years. Nobody really knows because how are you going to reconstruct whether or not a particular group of people spoke? But it's part of our ancient, ancient heritage as humans. Spoken language is the basis that from which such things as written language stem. So I want to talk about um, something that was a big contribution of yours, the WUG test. Um, ah, yes. You know, again, in this in this realm of what we take for granted and don't think hard enough about, you know, the fact that right. the children know grammatical forms that nobody's ever really tried to teach them, that, that young children say things they've never heard anyone say before. And right. your test was kind of demonstrating that. It did. It did. The test showed that even very, very little kids, namely children of three, uh, are able to make plurals of words they've never heard before, and past tenses of verbs they've never heard before, and a lot of other forms in the language uh, in a creative way they've never heard before. The classic example is the wug itself, right? Mm-hmm. The wug is a little creature, looks like a little birdie. And rule one is get their attention. And you got to create to a mythical creature. I mean, that's fun. <laughs> <laughs> I did get to create a mythical creature yeah. who's been around for so long, it would be embarrassing to tell you. But, <laughs> but you know, what I showed, let's give the example of, of the wug. I, I drew a little picture of a little wug, and then there were two. So I say to kids, this is a wug, now there's another one. There are two of them. There are two, and even little bitty kids say two wugs. Hmm. Even little three-year-olds, four-year-olds, five-year-olds without a problem fill in that z sound. Okay, Twyla. Uh, hi. Hi. I'm going to show you some pictures, okay? What are they? You tell me. Wug. Say that louder? Wugs. Well, this is great. We had to use nonsense words because if we use regular words, you could just say, well, they memorized it. You know, I said, here's a dog. Now there's another one. There are two. It gets two dogs. It only proves they've heard somebody say two dogs. Right, right, right. If they say two wugs. And then the plural in English is made, the regular plural, never mind children and oxen and brethren and things like that. The regular plural in English has three different forms depending on the stem of the word that it's going to be added to. Now, what we found was that kids acquire these different forms of the plural in different order. So that it builds, that complexity builds. Well, it it builds, but what's remarkable about it is that it builds in such a regular way. It it isn't that kids learn language in bits and pieces and every kid does it a different way. Children have their own ways of learning. Children have their own styles. They have their own temperaments. But when it comes to the acquisition of language as a system— 
the children abstract the rules, if I can say it that way, and I hesitate to say it that way, but they abstract the rules of the language in very much the same order. Mm -hmm. The children speaking English acquire English in very much the same order, uh, whoever they are and wherever they are. That, that is a remarkable sort of universal. Very nice. Yeah. Here is a man who knows how to zib. So what is he doing? He is... Zib. Zibbing. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today with psycholinguist Jean Berko Gleason. He has to do it every day. His job is to zib. So he's a... Zibber. Very, very, very good. So this observation gave rise to uh, linguistics and psycholinguistics' own version of the nature versus nurture debate. You might say. Well, there is one out there, and uh-huh. there has been an enduring one out there. But um, we talked about children having rules. This is why I, I was hesitant to talk about abstraction and things. So we could describe what children do. We could say, okay, look, they make the plural, and they do this, and they do that. Right. But then, then you can say, this is what they do. How do they do it, or why do they do it? Those are different questions. On the one side, you've got people who believe that much of language is innate. It's hardwired into your head. When you're born, you have the principles of grammar in place, all of those things. You have a language acquisition device. On the other end of the spectrum, you have other good friends of mine who are of a much more behaviorist uh, view who say, well, you have... uh, learning principles and parents spend a huge amount of time with children and they are basically helping to shape their language by reinforcing good attempts, by ignoring bad attempts, by modeling, by many different kinds of learning uh, activities. In the middle, you've got the interactionist world and that's where most of us are now. And the interactionist people are saying, look, you, you have a capacity. I mean, what I would say is your brain is not formed when you're born. Mm-hmm. You have to build your brain. Look at the look at what happened to the children in Romania who were taken well care of in nurseries or in, in orphanages. People fed them. They gave them clothing. They didn't talk to them. Those children's brains did not develop. Your brain develops through interaction with other people. And are and they? Is, do they have serious language? Uh, oh, please. Uh-huh. They have serious every issue. Mm-hmm. They are seriously compromised human beings. Mm-hmm. They have terrible, terrible problems if you if you don't have those critical experiences. So, so uh, we think, or I think, and a lot of people of my bent think, that, that language develops through interaction with other people talking to you and that it is not through mere exposure to the language. In other words, you could believe, oh, you've got the principles. It's sort of what you said to begin with. You've got the principles. They're innate. You just have to hear the language, set the parameters, and away you go. Right. Well, uh, the thought experiment that I would propose for that is if you really think that, take your child and set her in front of the, I don't know, the Chuck Chi or the Korean cable news every morning at the end of the year. <laughs> well, they start tell speaking me, Korean. T- tell me how much Chuck Chi that child can speak. Uh-huh. And you know what the answer is going to be? It's going to be none. Right. Because children don't learn that way. That is not how you acquire language. Oh, this is my belief, all right? And right. Th- it's, it's not just a belief. It's from everything I have seen, you know, with, with what happens with children and parents. And there is, of course, a fellow at MIT now, I suppose you have seen the work of Deb Roy at MIT. He's not a linguist. He's an engineer who has collected 350,000 hours of 
data on his child growing oh, up. Oh, this, this is the child project? It, it, yeah, it was a project uh-huh. at MIT. You uh-huh. can see he gave a TED lecture on it. And if, if uh, listeners are interested, it's a wonderful TED lecture that you can see describing how his little boy acquired individual words. And you can just see the child going from to, you know, to water along the way, but with this tremendous interaction with the people around him. So you've all, I'm sure, seen time-lapse videos where a flower will blossom as you accelerate time. I'd like you to now experience the blossoming of a speech form. My son, soon after his first birthday, would say gaga to mean water. And over the course of the next half year, he slowly learned to approximate the proper adult form, water. So we're going to cruise through half a year in about 40 seconds. nailed it, didn't he? So he didn't just learn water. Over the course of the 24 months, the first two years that we really focused on, we've identified each of the 503 words that he learned to produce by his second birthday. He was an early talker. And so we started to analyze why. Why were certain words born before others? And what we found was this curious phenomena that caregiver speech would systematically dip to a minimum, making language as simple as possible, and then slowly ascend back up in complexity. And the amazing thing was that that bounce, that dip, lined up almost precisely with when each word was born, word after word, systematically. So it appears that all three primary caregivers, myself, my wife, and our nanny, were systematically, and I would think subconsciously, restructuring our language to meet him at the moment of the birth of a word and bring him gently into more complex language. Language development is is a cooperative event. It happens between children and the people around them. And I think you need not just the cognitive stuff to understand how to, you know, abstract rules, but you also need to have uh, emotional underpinnings. Mm-hmm. You have to care. Mm-hmm. You know, why, why are you talking? You know, you, you have to care about other people. And, you know, people who don't care. I mean, one of the problems with, say, kids who have uh, problems like autism is that many of them are disconnected from other people and are, are thereby uh, much impaired in communicating with other people. And you're saying that so, that lack of motivation is critical, I think the lack of affect, lack of attachment, uh-huh. all of those things. Yeah, uh-huh. I think that language has many components. Like language, how does language begin in kids? It doesn't begin with the child suddenly looking around and saying, wow, I'm going to make a subject, a verb, and an object. It begins with communication with the people around that kid. In the first place, as you know, 
babies are listening to language before they're born. Right. You know, in, in utero, mm-hmm. babies are listening. And we now have technologies that enable us to show that not only are they listening, that if they're hearing two languages, they're beginning to build a bilingual brain yeah. before they're born. Yeah. And they're making preferences so that when they're, by the time they're born, babies prefer to listen to their own mother as against somebody else. So I think in the beginning, language is there so we can say, Mommy, I want you. <laughs> and little kids are very good at that. You know, it, it, this feels analogous and, and related to me to the, to the more expansive understanding we're gaining of intelligence in general, right? That, that it's not just a matter of information plugged in. I mean, even the field of artificial intelligence has changed, that robots are more interactive and that that's how knowledge how uh, important knowledge then is acquired and builds. Well, I, I don't know robots, but I do know babies. Yeah, okay. So, <laughs> so, so well, I, you know, here's the thing. A lot of linguists who make theories about how children learn language don't have children of their own. You know, they, 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 they haven't had that uh, that experience of seeing what goes on. I mean, that was why it was, I think, such a shock to the folks at, at MIT when Deb Roy came up with this, the engineer. Oh, because he worked with he, his own child. He was, he was studying his own child. And, and it's technology that nobody else can do, obviously, because he's got hundreds of cameras, mirrors. His whole house is wired. His whole house is <laughs> it's just incredible. All right. We'll wonder and, about uh, those therapy bills in 20 years. <laughs> um, so, it's now, true. But, I mean, as you, as you mentioned and you wrote about, which is interesting, that 50 years ago, um, people in linguistics or psycholinguistics often, or longer than that, studied their own children, that Darwin studied his own yes. children. And I've yes. seen you be very clear you have three daughters that you did not study <laughs> on your daughters. But, well, but, I, <laughs> I've got a lot of good ideas from them. Well, well, that's what I wanted to ask you. And also, I mean, how did the work you were doing, what you were learning, influence the way you spoke with them and interacted with them? Well, you know, I think it's the other way around. I mean, we, I think we've already established that I'm a verbal kind of person who can't resist <laughs> playing with language and everything. I obviously noticed a lot of what they were doing, but I didn't set up experiments with them. But look, for instance, one of my children said something that has become, that people don't seem to know she said, because I see people from all all spectra of the linguistic um, uh, world quoting it. One of my kids came home from preschool one day. And she said to me, my teacher holded the baby rabbits and I patted them. (sighs) And I said, oh, your teacher held the baby rabbits. And she said, yes. I said, "Uh, said, what did you say? She she holded the baby rabbits and we patted them. And then I said, well, did you say she held them tightly? And she said to me, no, she holded them loosely. (laughs) So here I'm thinking, well. I keep saying held. She keeps saying holded. You know, anybody who thinks that children acquire language through imitation is making a mistake. I mm. wrote a paper called Do Children Imitate? Mm. Uh, not based on, just with that as a thought, because then I went out and I found lots of kids and I, I made a thing like the WUG test, except it was all irregulars, and I gave the kids the answer. Okay, so yeah. I said, I said, here's a goose. Now there are two geese. What's this? A goose. What are these? Two geeses. Two gooses. Whatever. I mean, they 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 didn't give me that. They used the rule that, that they didn't. They realize. they overregularized basically okay. is what is what we say. So the point of that paper was that kids will use their own system mm-hmm. at the stage where they are. They're not imitating you. Not that you're not having an effect on them, but they're they're not learning language through pure imitation. They're building an internal system. But that my teacher holded the 
the baby rabbits ended up as big headers in Psychology Today and in Harvard <laughs> Magazine, all kinds of things. And I still hear people, I still hear people quoting us. So the same child said, we had a conversation one time, uh, I was talking about giraffes, and she said, what do giraffes eat? And I said, well, they eat leaves mostly. And she said, and what do they eat lessly? Oh, you know, so yeah. you, you, if you're a linguist, you pick up on things like right. that. It gives you ideas of how you of what's going on. But what, but, you, what you also see there is that they're really working, right? I mean, they're 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 yes. putting things you, together. You see the creativity. You you see that they actually have a systematic knowledge. Yes, that they have a systematic, and that was I think that was the big excitement. That that yeah. was, you know, getting back to what's good about the Wug test is even the fact that of course the Wugs are so cute. I say that because I drew them myself. Uh, <laughs> I did. We were very poor in graduate school. Now you see people have you know take it to the you department of graphics. graphics right. <laughs> we didn't have we didn't have a department of graphics. We had like you know a pad of paper and a what yeah. to make make. I made them in five by seven cards, uh-huh. which I bought at the Harvard Coop, you know, yeah. uh, and used colored pencils, and that's the way we did it. But it worked. It worked perfectly well. But anyway, well, yeah, and you know just. The, Getting at um, the fact that uh, that language is about more than language, right? That it's about more than words or sentences constructed. You know, there's this phrase that's all through your writing and in your field from Stanley Hall, who I guess is the father of developmental psychology, the, uh, contents, yes, the contents of, of children's, children's minds. minds. I mean, just that <laughs> yeah. phrase, the contents <laughs> yeah. of children's minds. Yeah. It's big. <laughs> yes, as bigger than we thought. I mean, that's you. You were right earlier on when you said that we're coming to understand so much more about intelligence. We 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 understand so much more about babies. I mean, you know, there was a time when people thought that babies had no sensation. Right, now, people, right, you do right. remember that people used to do open heart surgery on babies <sighs> under without anesthesia under the. Uh, impression that babies couldn't feel anything. Right. They sort of thought they were like blind puppies when they were born, you know, just squirming masses. Mm. So now as we get more uh, sophisticated in our in our ways of, of investigating them, we know more and more about them. But I hate to say that this is true about every other creature too. So those of us who still eat lobsters, for instance, uh, you know, now have got to worry about the social life of the lobster. Mm-hmm. You know, so the the, uh, the whole question of sentience, the whole question of having meaningful lives, I think, has uh, has spread. It turns out that an awful lot of creatures have complex and meaningful lives. Hmm. That's a big thought, too. That's uh, and you know <laughs> it, it is. It, it, yeah. it is. It is one that that slows us down a little bit. Yes. You know, when you when you realize, you know, if you start well, we're talking about language, but if you start thinking about the things that might not be so good in the country, a lot of it has to do, in my book, with not realizing the sentience of other creatures mm. and thereby causing great badness out there. At onbeing.org, you can see that hardworking wug and the other sweet, hand-drawn, mythical creatures that comprise Jean Burko Gleason's famous wug test. 
Check them out and have some fun with them. Take the test with your children. On our website, you can also listen again and find my unedited conversation with Jean Berko Gleason, including her speculation about how different languages shape character and thinking, and her early work with Romani-speaking gypsies in her parents' native Hungary. She observed that their improbable survival and cohesiveness as a culture had to do with unusually strong linguistic socialization. All that at onbeing.org. I'm Krista Tippett. On Being continues in a moment. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, I'm with a living legend in the field of psycholinguistics, Jean Berko Gleason. She created something called the WUG test as a young scientist, helping to illustrate the remarkable, ordinary human capacity to learn language. She's continued to break new ground in exploring what this may teach us about adults as about the children we're raising. Jean Berko Gleason has called the exploration of language a frontier, every bit as important and thrilling as outer space or the deep sea. I was thinking when I was getting ready to talk to you about a conversation I had with Martin Rees a few months ago, who's a, a physicist in Britain. And, mm-hmm. you know, he studies black holes and red dwarfs and stars and the solar system, but is you know, categorically says, as as those people will say, still the most complex phenomena in the universe by far are living beings. <laughs> Anything well, that's alive. True. Yeah. It's it's true. And and one of the things we've been doing in our recent research, as a matter of fact, is trying to look at the linguistic competence of our connection to other living beings. Right. And, tell me about that, because I just I saw you mention that. But tell me what, right. what that well, research it's, it's, is it's about. A, it's, what a, you're doing. it's the latest thing I've been doing, yeah. which uh, which began uh, with a paper we wrote called "Alligators All Around." <laughs> I think somebody else wrote that first. Um, the uh, the acquisition of animal terms in English and Russian is a chapter we wrote in a book, but it was based on a paper we gave at a conference. We we were looking at children's early vocabulary, and here's the thing. When you look at young kids, you know, here I was telling you, oh, they all do it the same way. And, you know, and people can characterize early vocabulary. When you characterize early vocabulary, you say things like it's in the here and now. Uh, It's things of interest to the child. It's things around the child. You know, two-year-olds have words. They have words like mommy and daddy and baby and book and also Tyrannosaurus rex. You know, I mean, for some reason, they have a long, but nobody noticed this, right? This that, they, not, that they learned the names of animals? Is that? That they have huge animal vocabularies. Huh. So this is what we began to look at. And we began to look at just the category of animals. And it really turns out that, well, for both English and Russian speaking kids, because that was the first set we did, we found little kids whose animal vocabulary has nothing to do with those those rules we were talking about. It's not things around them. It's not simple to say. It's not common words. I mean, we, uh, the Russian part, my colleague Elena Zaretsky finds little Russian kids playing, you know, say, vod krokodilchik, you know, little crocodiles. Uh-huh. A 14 month old talking to a little crocodile, little play. Oh, that don't do that. Yeah. Well, it's interesting when you begin to think that it isn't just the children, it is also we. 
we have this enormous connection to the living world that is reflected in our language, but in a way that we haven't been thinking about. At least I haven't until recently, and I don't know anything about it in the in the language literature. A lot of people are talking about children and animals and the importance of animals or how good it is to take a dog to the nursing home, things of that sort. But uh, the point is that we have an enormous connection to the rest of the living world and that we love the living world. We love animals and we love plants. And this is reflected in what we're doing with children. In our field now, we've become very high tech. We have data bags that have transcripts. So I can say, Look at all of the combinations of words where parents say, look at the, and pull that out. Pull out every sentence like that, and let's see what parents are telling children to look at. Okay. Mm -hmm. So we did that recently, and we pulled out over 2,000 utterances from 61 different people. Of the top 30 words, I believe this is correct, that parents are calling kids' attention to, 12 are animals. I mean, animals are really right up there. We're, we're really, in fact, the example I gave, because I, I gave a, a little talk about this at the uh, World Science Festival. Right, I right. Believe, I, I believe that's what it was called. Anomia mm. <laughs> <Enomia> hits. <laughs> um, it, it was at the World Science Festival. I, I, I showed a picture of uh, that wonderful horse from the caves at Lascaux. Yes. You know, and uh, I said, here's a picture that was drawn 17,500 years ago. It's pretty clear that an interest in animals has been with us for a long time. I mean, somebody expended a huge amount of time drawing that beautiful horse on that cave wall. So uh, th so this interest in animals is with us. And as I, I think I said at the uh, World Science Festival, when you take your child for a walk— you say, look at the birdie, yeah. not look at the traffic cone. It's true. Okay. You, you don't, you, it's extremely rare for parents to say, look at the rock. And I will bet you that our ancient ancestor, when she finished this painting on the wall at Lascaux 17,500 years ago, turned to her little cave kid and said, look at the horsey. Oh, look at this. What is that? What's this? Look, Daddy, it's a chickadee. A chickadee? Daddy, frogs live in the water. And turtles live in the water. And dolphins live in the water. Oh. Jokes live in the water. And fish live in the water. So that's all the animals that can go in the water. So how is uh, the science, the new science of the brain, um, changing your field? I don't know how involved you are with that, but like what can be studied and how it can be studied? And uh, Oh, it's incredible. Uh, it, what, what can be studied is, I don't do that, all right? There are wonderful people who do. There are a number of people out in the West Coast, people in Vancouver, who are doing absolutely wonderful things in looking at Act, see, what's very exciting is that they're beginning to pattern activation in the brain. And, and now they can do it on in, non-invasively on tiny children. So you can tell where things are happening in the brain. Mm -hmm. You can tell either by measuring blood flow 
or by measuring changes in oxygen. But these are all external, you know. You don't have, and you don't have to. People have been using functional MRI for some time, but the problem with functional MRI, if anybody's ever been in one of those machines, it's like. It's like having a. It's horrible. And it's you couldn't noisy. put a three-year-old in there very. Exactly. Very long. No, you'd have to sedate them or yeah. something. You'd have to. They have to be unconscious. Uh-huh. But now they have these little caps they can put on because where they are able to measure these changes either in in um, uh, in magnetic activity or in blood flow or in oxygen, something of that sort, and they're able to tell where things are happening in the brain. So is is there anything that that this is this is making apparent that. You know that's that's really changing the equation, or, or or is it? How is it weighing into this? These polls that we talked about, this discussion—is it nativist or or in, how how interactively we learn language and what yeah, that means? Well, it, it is showing that some of the things we talked about earlier in this conversation have actual physiological correlates. Uh-huh. So when I said that you can sh- that babies who are hearing two languages in utero are born with a bilingual brain, they actually have brain testing that shows that they have activation for both languages, et cetera. So, so, in, so are the two languages in different places? or how does that... Oh, I, 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 I wouldn't want to get into that. Yeah. I, I don't know. And uh-huh. I'm, 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 that's not my field. But, but all I'm saying is that they are able to show uh-huh. that that there is brain activation for uh, for both languages, and so that their brain, all by the time they're born, their brain is not the same as a monolingual kid's brain. You know, you're building a bilingual brain. That's so really the, the other the other thing is that with this complex um, technology, they are indeed able to show, uh, as we said earlier, that earlier and earlier. Uh, in a child's life, that that they are able to make distinctions and they're hearing what's going on, mm-hmm. and and their brain is really doing it. But that's but look, that's that's neurology. I mean, it is psychoneurology mm-hmm. or it is linguistic neuropsychology. You give it a name, whatever you like, that will go on. But that doesn't mean that people are going to stop looking at mothers talking to their children. No. We need every kind of research. You know what 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 science has to look for is what is called convergent validity. And that is that many different kinds of research will ultimately come in on what is the truth as we know it, or as we as best we can know it for our era. And there there might be things that we don't know about right now. Mm-hmm. I mean there may be there may be things that we just don't know about or haven't thought about or given and paid any attention to. But but so the the brain science is wonderful, uh, but it isn't where every developmental psychologist is going to go, and it is not doing away with basic research in human interaction. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, with a legend and pioneer of linguistics, Jean Berko Gleason. So, uh, linguistics was kind of more philosophical in its earlier generations and became more of a science, especially in your lifetime. Um, I wonder, though, if here at the 21st century, for, for whatever reason, it seems to me that in a lot of scientific fields, there are kind of new philosophical questions emerging from the advanced science. I mean, I think we've you and I have touched on that a little bit. I mean, there are new, new, more sophisticated questions being asked about 
what intelligence is and what makes us human and how we learn. True, and and you can you can ask those questions from all sides. Just, just let me back up for a moment yeah. though about linguistics, because linguistics has always had several threads, and one of them is philosophical. And for instance, I would say that the uh, the the nativist linguists stem from a very philosophical tradition, where you can think about language, for instance. Uh, you don't even need a lot of data because you assume that everybody is exactly the same so that if you think hard enough, you'll understand how things happen. But they come from a very philosophical tradition. A lot of other linguistics stems, that's modern linguistics. Let's just talk about uh, the uh, the, t- the 20th century. Uh, there were great linguists before that, and we could get back to uh, Sanskrit because the people mm. who wrote Sanskrit down were terrific linguists. But in the 20th century, uh, the people who did descriptive language linguistics, uh, who sat down and said, here's how the plural works, and here's how the past tense works, and here's what sentences look like, often had very pragmatic reasons and religious reasons for doing this. You know, linguistics has a huge religious History. We'll say some um, more about that. <laughs> all right, I will. My brother-in-law, Henry Allen Gleason Jr., was a linguist. He wrote a book called An Introduction to Descriptive Linguistics. It is the book that I read and used as a textbook as a student in linguistics. It's what I when I made the WUG test, it was his descriptions of how language works that I relied on, not something that came out of the more philosophical group. Now the the religious linguists were missionaries, and one of their purposes, mm-hmm. and they still exist. If you if you look up a group called the Summer Institute of Linguistics, there are still people out there whose aim in life is to go to distant parts of the world, find languages that have not been written down, find people who speak those languages, sit down, figure out how the language works, get it written down, give the people a writing system so that they can give them the Bible. Mm, okay. I mean, that is a major, a major linguistic missionaries were, were a major force in the 20th century American linguistics. Hmm. So if you look up names like, well, I, like Henry Allen Gleason or Kenneth Pike, you know, a number of them were missionaries. Hmm. They were, we were religious people who had, you know, you go to India where you say, well, there are a thousand languages and yeah. an awful lot of them have not been written down. Let's get to work. Let's let's bring the Bible to the world. I want to come back to something that you wrote um, this was a review of a book that you wrote in 2003, and, and the title, I think, is evocative. It, language acquisition, is it, is it like learning to walk or learning to dance? You wrote in that article, you wrote, possibly we are asking the wrong questions. For instance, when we look to innateness, why do we not consider what might be innate in us as nurturing yes, adults? that is correct. And, and that's exactly what I was talking about with the animals, you see, is that we... It's not just children who carry possibly innate things. We come with a with a long history of being attached to other living creatures. So to assume that children would just be picking up birdie and doggy because that's the way they are mm-hmm. misses the point that we are that way too, and that we are bringing doggies and birdies to them and talking about them. So uh, that, that's that's what I mean is that it's a, a language acquisition is a joint activity, and if there is if there are innate components, there are innate components in adults as well as in children, and some of them are our attention to the world, and some of them are our love of other people. Mm-hmm. I mean, what, what, do, 
we are innately predisposed to pay attention to little children and to talk to them. So let's not just assume that we are scientists sitting around watching babies unfold. We're unfolding with them. It's a cooperative event. That's, mm. I think, what I was saying. Mm. And that's part of what I meant when I wrote. Think about what, is, what might be innate in all of us, not just, not just the babies. How do you think you uh, would ponder the question or your sense of the question of what it means to be human? How do you think that's different because or informed by this life you've led studying language? What it means to be human? Well, I think I, I think um, ultimately, since we're, we keep discovering, as we've said through this past hour or so, that other creatures have many of the characteristics that we previously thought were only ours, and and we find this increasingly. I think that what is most human about us. So human being human isn't being kind because, you know, remember the child that fell in the gorilla moat and the gorilla picked it up tenderly and rescued it? I mean, I mean, gorillas are kind. Uh, it isn't a lot of things. It isn't having technology because, you know, chimpanzees make sticks to catch their termites or whatever. I mean, they don't mm-hmm. go to the moon with them. But I, I think that for me... Probably the biggest distinction, if we need to make a distinction, and by the way, I don't think we need to make any, nor- you know, I, I don't think that humans are not animals. We are animals. Mm-hmm. We are very complex animals, and we're very smart and very destructive. You know, we have some good and bad qualities. Yeah. But I guess for me, the most important difference I see is self-consciousness, is consciousness of ourselves, the ability to reflect on ourselves and to comment on that. Jean Berko Gleason is Professor Emerita of Psychology at Boston University. That says daddy, so d-a-t-e. That's not a book for Chris. me. I'm old, remember? Yes, I don't care. I'm young. You're young? You're not a kid until you're um, six. What are you then? Young. If you're six, you're a kid, and then you start being a kid, then you start being grown up, then you start being an old lady or an old man. <laughs> <laughs> You're gonna be an old man. I am? Yes, but not yet. You're not an old man yet. Oh, that's good. <laughs> While we were producing this show, a few of us experimented with recording our kids. The then two-and-a-half-year-old Delilah, five-year-old Lucy, and 13-year-old Sebastian. We had varying results. You know that I would never make you sound anything but brilliant. (laughs) Can you repeat the question? I'm serious. I didn't know you were recording. But we persevered. We listened for that amazing human capacity, as Jean Berko Gleason so evocatively put it, to be conscious and to comment on that. Well, human is kind of a 
it's a plural, it's not. To be human doesn't mean that you are a human, it means you are a part of humanity. And being a part of something means that you have to do your part. That's pretty good. Yeah, I thought so. So maybe you'd like to try this with the children or grandchildren in your life. We've created a Raising Children collection at onbeing.org. On our site, we've also posted a link to Deb Roy's TED Talk, The Birth of a Word. We leave you today with another snippet from that. I want to leave you with one last memorable moment from our family. This is our, the first time our son took more than two steps at once, captured on film. And I really want you to focus on something as I, as I take you through. It's a cluttered environment. It's natural life. My mother's in the kitchen cooking, and of all places in the hallway, I realize he's about to do it, about to take more than two steps. And so you hear me encouraging him, realizing what's happening, and then the magic happens. Listen very carefully. About three steps in, he realizes something magic is happening. And the most amazing feedback loop of all kicks in, and he takes a breath in, and he whispers, wow. And instinctively, I echo, I echo back the same. And so let's fly back in time to that memorable moment. Can you do it? Oh, boy. Can you do it? <laughs> now he's walking. Being is Trent Gillis, Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Mariah Helgeson, Maya Terrell, Annie Parsons, Marie Sambale, Tess Montgomery, Asil Zaron, Bethany Klecker, and Selena Carlson. Special thanks this week to Deb Roy, the staff at TED, and to Delilah and Lucy and Sebastian. Major funding partners are the Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide at FordFoundation.org, the Fetzer Institute, fostering awareness of the power of love and forgiveness to transform our world. Find them at Fetzer.org, Calliopeia Foundation, contributing to organizations that weave reverence, reciprocity, and resilience into the fabric of modern life. The Henry Luce Foundation, in support of Public Theology Reimagined. And the Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives.
On Being is distributed by American Public Media and is a Krista Tippett Public Production.